couple weeks ago, I sent out on the Monday email, I sent out a um, um, kind of a little game. Someone could win a disciple's study Bible. And I said, uh, if you respond, I'll put you in a drawing and uh, we'll pick one and I'll give this away to you. Well, uh, it was a pretty easy drawing. There was only one name uh, and uh, that was Deborah Watson. And so we take that back to Deborah back there. Um, but uh, I appreciate that. And when it, these, these emails I sent on a Monday called Living Sunday on Monday, I hope you will take time to read those because I know how it is. You jump into the week and already the sermon's gone. I mean, the, the, what, what was, God was convicting you, what the Holy Spirit was doing, and it's long lost between all that stuff you have to do between the kids and uh, school and work. And so that's a way to remind you to live out uh, what we've talked about here throughout the week. So I hope you'll read those, and from time to time, I'll drop in a little gift uh, if you'll reply to that uh, possibility. And so uh, I, I give away that disciple study Bible because I think it's a good reminder that we're not here just to take in information so we can be better. We're here to be more like Jesus so we can pass on that to other people and and show God's glory to others and disciple others in the faith. And so uh, that Bible is a really nice tool, the Disciple Study Bible, and it's a great uh, lot of notes and things helping people grow in their faith. Because uh, that's, that's critical because even those of us who attend a Bible teaching church, we know how easy it is to get messed up in the way that we view the world, how that we see the world. And the truth is, depending on your circumstances, depending on where you came from, your parents and all these things, you have a certain view of how the world is and you use this, what's called a worldview, to make sense of the world. And I, I just brought some sunglasses today to help maybe help you remember the fact that we all have a different worldview. So think of a worldview like sunglasses. These are, this is the way that possibly you view the world. Maybe in this case, it's, it's ice cream cones, right? So everything's about pleasure, right? You're, you walk through the life and your default by nature is, what can I get to make me feel better? Or what can I do to make my life less stressful? And so your bent in life, your focus in life, your view in life is basically, how can, life, how can people in life serve me? How can my finances serve me so that I can have an easier or better time uh, with life. And so we all have a different worldview depending on who you are and where you are in your faith and so on. But the trick is so many times that we don't know the extent of our selfishness, the extent of how tainted our view of the world really is, because so many times we're just, we're, we're blind to the, the, the flaws in our life or the shortcomings in our life or the things that we really uh, haven't progressed in our sanctification the way that we should. And so we're walking around and maybe we're just uh, don't realize it. I, we did this great marriage night on Thursday night, incredible night. So many of you were, were there. I think we had 80 uh, people, 40 couples, incredible turnout. But maybe marriage is where you have um, maybe a tainted view of the world. In, in your marriage, Everything is your spouse's fault. I mean, it always comes down to them. They're the problem, not your, you. And so you're in this marriage and you walk around with a viewpoint that is, it's them, not me. It's them, not me. And so it can impact things like your marriage, it, it, your theology. I mean, so many, I mean, we know there's so many denominations, there's so many branches of churches. Why? Because different people view things different ways. I encountered uh, some people the other day who were, uh, what's called Baptist Bride, all right? There's lots of Baptists, okay? Baptist is a, a very, very big umbrella. But there's these people called Baptist Bride, and they think that only their little niche, 
making it to heaven. Everybody else is going to hell. They're the only ones that have it right. And so they have a worldview. When they see you as a Christian, they look at you and say, well, they just don't get it. They, they just don't get how to understand the Bible, how to read the Bible. And so we all have this. And I think it's pr- particularly prominent in our Western way of viewing the world. We forget, honestly, don't we, how urgent the needs are in this world. Because everything's pretty comfortable for us. And we forget that so many millions and millions, maybe even a billion people in this world, lack some of the basic necessities for survival. We forget that people die every day from very preventable things, like clean water. Like we just turn on the faucet, out comes water, we drink it, and, you know, maybe you filter your water and you want even better water, and there, here they are carrying buckets of water from a tainted uh, creek or, or, or river back to their village, and they're drinking it, and so many people, particularly children and the elderly, die as a result of these things. So we forget that that, that goes on. We forget things like uh, human trafficking. I mean, that's a, like we, we say that, or sex trafficking, we say that, and we forget that truly... Thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people are involved in human trafficking and they get sucked into this and they get treated in a way that, that is inhumane and no dignity as somebody who's created in the image of God. But, and, and so the point is we can walk through life and never realize that stuff exists because we have our view of the world, right? And it's hard to break out of our view of the world and see it's not our wife's fault, it's our fault that the world maybe isn't as comfortable as we think, it's just our view of the world is and there's lots of other stuff going on in the world or our theology is right and everybody else is wrong and so we walk through life with this viewpoint and this mindset and so the question is how can we see the truth because the truth is even when we hear God's word taught we filter it through what our experiences are what we think what we like what's comfortable for us, and then we, out the other side, we'll do something with it based upon what feels good to us. And it's only the Holy Spirit, it's only grace that can change our hearts. And I say that in introduction because I think it's so easy as we go through the gospel and as we look at uh, the disciples and we see them again today hearing from Jesus something so plain and so simple and so, like, here's the deal, yet they can respond so the opposite because it, it, it's easy to sit here and look at the word and say, wow, you know, interesting. Oh, wow. Uh, wow, what's that in the Greek? And we come up with all these theological in our head kind of applications to it. But we miss out on, like, we're the same way. We're human and we look at the world and we see what we want to see. You see, the disciples grew up in a culture where religious people exalted themselves. That's all they knew. All they knew in their life and existence was that religious people, people who, who follow God and love God, these were people who were up there. And they were great, and they were wealthy, and they had all this stuff, and they were the elite of society. And so in their mind, the disciples' minds, that was the way it should be, right? That if you follow God, then everything is good, and everything's great, and you're kind of above everyone else. And so the, the people of, of Jesus' day, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had such a backwards way of doing faith. But again, how about us? All right, think about us, not just them. But think about how crazy this is. The disciples as kids grew up seeing that when the 
Pharisees and the religious leaders went to give offerings at the temple, they literally had trumpets play, announcing their arrival. Here we come with our money. We're going to give. Watch me. See me. Look at me. I'm so important and special to God. You that have the infirmity, you're blind or your, your kid's sick, God's against you. You've done something evil or somebody down the line has done something bad. Look at us. We're the example. And so I say all that to say when we read the gospel, there's context here. And when we read this, we need to understand this was all they knew. And this was their worldview. And so when you get trapped into this view of the world, it's so hard to break out. And Jesus is trying to break them out of this very, very um, anti-God, anti-heart, anti-others viewpoint and help them to see what a true follower of God really is like. And so we're back in John, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to be in verse 30 through 37. Mark 9, verse 30 through 37. Let's read this together. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, he called his twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And servant of all. And he took a little child and put him in, his, in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for your word that breaks us out of our comfort zone. It breaks us out of the way that the world tries to just culture, uh, to, this culture tries to just pound us into a mold and make us think a certain way, God, and your word exposes how we've adopted uh, really an anti-biblical uh, way of, of living in so many ways, God. And I pray you'll wake us up to the truth of your words today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's talk for a minute where we've been in the gospel the last few weeks, okay? We, we, we have Peter's confession back in chapter 8, a big point, turning point in, in the gospel, all right? They, they've been traveling with Jesus. They weren't sure exactly who Jesus was. All of a sudden, they truly recognize he's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited Messiah for the nation, the deliverer for the nation of Israel. And so when Peter confessed, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of God, then all of a sudden, he did follow this with, Okay, now you're going to, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going, I'm going to be resurrected, and if you're going to follow me, the same thing is going to happen to you. Well, Peter didn't like this, and the other disciples didn't like this, because again, their viewpoint of the world was, the Messiah brings deliverance, the Messiah sure doesn't suffer and die. And so, Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus turns back around and rebukes Peter, and, Peter, and Jesus begins to talk about, here's the cost to following me, if you're going to follow me, Here's the cost. So today is the second time where Jesus directly predicted his suffering and his death and his resurrection. The first time he immediately followed with the cost of discipleship. And then today he plainly tells them again. And he says this is going to happen second time. 
And how do they respond this time? They respond by saying, okay, who's the greatest? Who, who, who among us really, really is the most, going to be the most affluent in the kingdom? Who of us is the most important, the most powerful? And wow, does this not give like totally empirical evidence of why we need the cross and why we need Jesus and why that was necessary? Because all of us have a desire for greatness, even if you maybe consider yourself like, I'm shy, I don't like to be in the spotlight, but all of us have this search for significance in our own way, and so much of our life is spent trying to get that. Yet Jesus turns all that on its head, and he says that you need to live for God's greatness, not your own greatness. And Paul Tripp said this the other night in the videos at date night, I say it a lot, the DNA of sin is selfishness, because selfishness is at the core it's about me, it's what I want, it's my view of the world, it's pleasure, it's my power, it's my comfort, it's my influence, how I want the world to be for me. And Jesus is going to totally turn that on its head. And so as he goes in and begins to teach them, it's amazing the fact that they don't get it. But we don't get it. I mean, it, we're so slow, just like they're so slow. I was trying to think of practical examples of things that we do or have done in church culture, and we know that still many churches and denominations still have this big pompous ceremony where the religious leaders are set apart and they're, they're, they're viewed as the elite and God talks directly to them. And, and that still exists in our world. And I think even in my own tradition, this kind of seems silly and not to that level, but it, it was still like almost separating out like those who were more important to God than those who weren't. Um, the churches I grew up in, uh, the, the, the pastor, the bigger the staff he had, the more important he was, especially when he went to the conferences and things. And the que first question you would ask someone is, uh, how big is your church? And the second question, how many people you have on staff there? Those were the, the questions that were asked so many times at pastor's conferences, right? And, and so how is that compatible with what Jesus said? And in the churches we grew up in, the pastor, at the beginning of the service, the pastor would walk up on the stage with his men following him, and they'd have these high wingback chairs on the, on, the, on, the, on the stage, and they would all sit down in the seats there for the sermon. And then the pastor would come up, and he would preach, and all his guys were back there, you know, supporting him and amening him and, 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 and being his, his blind followers in so many ways in the, in the tradition I grew up in. And you see, we can be guilty of a tainted view of the world as well. So lest we be too hard on the disciples, most of the time we are in this for what we can get out of it in subtle ways as well. So Jesus said, here's the cost of discipleship. Here's the cost of following me. And then we looked a couple weeks ago at that transfiguration. And then last week Roy uh, preached about the healing of the demon-possessed boy. And so verse 30, they went from there, this area of Caesarea Philippi. And they headed back south, back to the Galilee area. And this is going to be the, the last time, according to Mark's gospel, that Jesus is going to spend any time in Galilee until after the resurrection. And Jesus is keeping this low profile at this point. He's only got his inner circle, his 12 around him, and he's investing in them. He's teaching them. And what is he teaching them? Verse 31, he was teaching his disciples what? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So he says, the Son of Man is just going to be delivered into the hands of men to be killed. Now, your version of your Bible may say the word, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Same word 
is used, but translated two different ways based upon the translation. I, I think this is important for newer believers or people who are just, uh, you're, you're seekers, you're not sure where you're at in your faith and you don't understand. Look, maybe the word betrayed isn't a good word, even though it is true that Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Maybe you know that story. But the truth is, Jesus wasn't a victim, okay? Jesus wasn't a victim who was taken against his will and put on a cross. And so Jesus was delivered, but Jesus wasn't a victim to be taken against his will. And I think it's important because it was God's will that he crushed Jesus. And that's important. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that Jesus was a martyr. From the beginning, from the foundations of the earth, the crucifixion. So everything, everything points to the cross. It all does. The Old Testament, the fall of man, Israel's history and and everything that went on with the nation all pointed to Jesus, all pointed to this point in history that was coming up very, very soon. And and then verse 32 says, they just didn't understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask him. Because again, they just could not comprehend this idea of a suffering Messiah, even though we learned a couple weeks ago that there was enough in the Old Testament for them clearly to have seen that. The religious leaders of the day should have been aware of that. But some of their confusion is understandable. If you've been tracking with this, you know that Jesus spends a lot of time sp- talking in parables, all right? Which it, to, the, to the people who were the unbelievers, this was code. I mean, this didn't make any sense whatsoever. People would sit there and scratch their head, like, what is he saying? And the disciples were guilty of that too. And what would happen? They would come back later in private, and the disciples would go, hey, Jesus, will you explain to us what you were talking about there? And Jesus would then explain to them the parable. And so Jesus had this way of speaking in a way where he told something, but it also had a, a, a hidden meaning. And so it's understandable at some degree that Jesus has been talking this way for so long. And again, worldview, view of the world, how could a Messiah possibly ever die? It's, a, it's just not a possibility. That's nowhere in our religious teaching, our religious leaders giving us this information. We don't see it in Scripture. We don't get that. That's beyond our comprehension. So it's understandable that they're thinking, okay, Jesus, okay, this is code for something, right? Something here, there's something deeper here. It's kind of like when Jesus said the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they thought, okay, yeah, dude, we, we should have brought the bread, right? Like, like, so they wanted to take Jesus literally, and then Jesus would oftentimes say, well, no, there's something else I'm trying to teach you here. So it's sort of understandable that they wouldn't take this literally because of the way the parables had been working all along. And also, Jesus didn't come right out and say, I'm going to be delivered. What did he say? What's the word? What, what did he use for himself? He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. And so he didn't say himself, and so they're sitting here thinking, okay, who is the Son of Man? And they're not connecting it to Jesus. They're not connecting it back to Daniel chapter 7, where this is this image of the Messiah who would come. And so they're confused, but at some level, it's understandable. Again, because their view of the world. This is outside their view of the world. So when is God trying to say something to us, and how good are we at listening to it? Because we can't break out of our view of the world. Let's bring bring this home really personal. What's God trying to say to you that you're just not listening to? Either you're just blind to it, or you're just in a spiritual predicament where you're not really attuned to what God's doing, or you're not seeking God. 
And here he is, he's, he's trying to give you practical application from his word week after week for your sanctification so you can become more like Jesus in your life, yet we walk out of here and oftentimes we just go about our business and nothing changes. And I was thinking for myself, you know, I, the other day Mitch and I were looking back for like uh, something for old sermons and he started to play a sermon and I'm like, I don't even remember that. And that one, I don't remember that. And so I was thinking, what impact does this make on me? Well, about a month ago, I was preparing a sermon, and I remembered an organization I used to really, really like and support, and if you were in the youth ministry back in the day, we used to support Living Water International, which provides clean water, and actually our youth group, one year, we built half of a well in Haiti. We, we raised the funds and built half this well, and they sent us a picture of the actual well. That was so cool, and I was like, that's such a good organization. I need to support that again, because it's, it's really making a difference in this world, and so I just went on and signed up for for a $20 gift every month just to help and, and the difference that can make. And I thought, I can, I can live without 20 bucks. That's not a big sacrifice. And, and you know, and another thing that came out of, of this guy working in my heart, and I just took this to the elders, was Chuck Harper back here and the mission in, in, in Honduras. And when we met with them and, and thought, man, they're on the front lines. They're doing the stuff that we see Jesus is about. We need to be supporting them. And so in the 2020 budget, there's going to be a proposal to take on another missionary, a couple other missionaries, one being Chuck and Joyce Harper in their work in Honduras. Another thing, specific people God brought to mind and says, I encounter these people often throughout the week, a couple times a week, and they're probably not believers, and a couple I know aren't believers. I'm going to put those on my prayer list. I'm going to start praying for those people and look for opportunities to share Christ with them. And the other day, I was at lunch with a couple guys, and, and we just asked the guy, one of the guys who was on my list, like, hey, we're getting ready to pray. What can we pray for you about? And he was awkward at first, but then he told us something to pray about. It was kind of a cool moment. And so, God, when you begin to live for God's glory, people realize that, you know, you're not about you. And they're, and, and they're not going to be weirded out by the fact that you ask them what you can pray for them about, because you've set yourself to a point where they know that I'm not living for my glory, I'm living for God's glory. Not perfectly, but I'm living for Him. And so don't be hesitant to step out in those very practical ways and allow God to open your eyes to where you've been way too narrow in your view of the world and what Jesus wants to accomplish in the world. You know, a, a clear sign that the answer to this question for the disciples was no uh, is because they began, the next paragraph, began to be concerned for their own status and their own well-being, and what's in it for me. And you know, when you have that mindset, when you say, what's in this for me? I can assure you, you're not getting what Jesus is saying, and you're not listening to God, and you're not hearing what God says. So look, look what they, they, they do. They come to Capernaum, and Jesus asked them, what were you discussing? And they kept silent. They knew they were not doing, they knew this wasn't right. They knew they shouldn't have been having this conversation they were arguing about which one was about to be the greatest. And for us, you know, if, if we think that coming to Jesus gives us extra special fringe benefits in this world, then you've, you've got a bad, bad worldview of, of the scriptures. You've got a bad view of the gospel. And I don't know how people can sit here and see the gospel and hear Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself. Uh, the first shall be last, the last will be first. And some way walk out of here saying, 
man, I'm a Christian. I do what, what I'm supposed to do, and God's going to obligate himself to do what I want him to do. And it's about your health, wealth, and your prosperity. I don't understand how people can find that in the Bible. And, and, and so we enter this, what it's in it for me. What do I get out of this? And it's so hard because maybe that was the way that you grew up, or maybe you heard that over and over again, like that God's obligated. If you do this for God, then he's obligated to do this for you. And again, I, I grew up with that, that, that mindset. I grew up thinking that, you know, if I read my Bible and prayed, then my mom and dad wouldn't get cancer. Like God was kind of obligated. If I'm doing the right stuff here and I'm checking off the boxes and being the good person I should be, that God's going to then protect, you know, put that hedge of protection around us, all right? One way this played out really in a, in a silly way, and sorry if you do this, all right, I'm really not making fun, but, but we, we would, before long trips, and, and we started doing this in our family for a while too until I, I really saw how foolish this was. Before long trips, we would pray for a hedge of protection around our car, right? And we would pray that God would protect us. And what's interesting, I wonder, like, what constituted a long trip, all right? Why didn't we pray for the short trips too, not just the long trips, we wouldn't pray for it like we're going to the store across town. God, give us a head to protection. Because did you know most accidents happen within five miles of your house, right? So we should have been praying for every trip, not just for the long trips. But we only prayed for the long trips. And, we go, and so we pray for God to protect us. Is there anything wrong with praying for protection? I would put that as a second level prayer, okay? Top level would be, God, as we go on this trip, help us to glorify your name. And no matter what we encounter or no matter what happens, we want to represent you and be your ambassadors. And you know we sure would like to be safe on this trip. And you know we sure would like to have a good time on this vacation. But God, not our will, but your will be done in whatever you bring into our path. Think about how that remixes and changes the way that you view the world. Instead of, God, protect me, keep me safe, do the stuff that you, you're, you're supposed to do as God because like we're doing our stuff, so you do your stuff. And we look at God as this, this force field that, that, that's supposed to do something for us. And he's like, I'm about my name. I'm about my glory. I'm about pointing other people to me. Because why? When they know Jesus and find, and find God, that's where true lasting joy happens. This, this short-term stuff that we focus so much on, there's no joy in that in the long run, right? Who cares if you have health, wealth, and prosperity in this world and stand before God and God said, oh, you wanted to be first in this life. Well, you're last in my eyes. And so Jesus turns everything on its head. And that's where for me, I'm, I'm admitting for me as well as probably most of you in here, this is not something that fits comfortably into our view of the world. Because it's not about us. And so we see the disciples, and we see them doing this, but we do the same thing. We just might not be saying it, right? I mean, it takes a lot of nerve to say, I'm, gonna be, I'm the greatest, right? I, I should be the greatest. I mean, that's what eight-year-olds on the football field do. I'm the best. Let me be quarterback. I'm the best. We don't say that. We just think it maybe at times that we're the best. But, but they actually said this and verbalized it, and Jesus exposed it for what it was. Just, what's in it for me? What, what do I get out of this? You know, maybe you've heard, and sometimes these little, these little phrases we come up with in Christianity sometimes can have really good stuff to them and meaning to them, and sometimes they're just off base. Have you ever heard this one? It says, the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. The safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. 
Well, okay, if you want to use that, make sure your definition of safe is accurate and scriptural. Because I think in our culture, this idea of safe means protection from danger. There won't be any pain, any suffering, any injury. But I think that could be a good statement. Maybe we replace the word safe with secure. The most secure place in the world is in the center of God's will. I would agree with that, and I think that's a much better way of saying it. When we're walking in God's will, there's security there because we know he's sovereign, he's in control, and no matter what happens, God didn't fall asleep, take a nap, and all of a sudden he woke up, oh, wow, oh, that's happening, oops, sorry about that. I know you gave your tithe last, last week, I, I, I should have been there for you, I just was kind of dozing off, doing something else. No, God doesn't take naps, he doesn't fall asleep, he, he's not somewhere else when something bad happens to us. And that's something we have to own and, and understand from Scripture that God is sovereign. He's in control. Since I'm a, on, a, on a little road to roll here, I think. Um, another thing in our tradition was we would have these stewardship banquets every year. If you grew up maybe in my tradition, you did that as well. And they would parade some people up in front who would begin to say how they begin to tithe faithfully to their church and um, you know, and it was amazing. They began to tithe, and all of a sudden, God opened the windows of heaven, and like their business just took off, and everything just began to flourish. And I'm not denying that they didn't experience that, but it sent the totally wrong signals. It, it was this obligation mentality again. I give to God, and He gives to me. But let me ask you this: Would that conversation fly in front of Christians in North Korea? Okay, you give to God. You follow Jesus. You stand boldly for him, and great things are going to happen in your life. Right? North Korea. No. You see, that's worldview. Because we're westernized. Christianity is the dominant thing still in our culture. And so, yes, a lot of times if you follow God's principles, you follow his precepts, good things happen in our culture because we value honesty and we value life somewhat in, in, in integrity. But in North Korea, they don't care about that. And so you begin to follow Jesus, you begin to give to him, it's probably not going to go better for you as far as the world's viewpoint and the world's standpoint. You think about Jesus. Jesus grew up in a poor family, evidenced by the birth in a manger. His parents were poor, we know, because they gave the poor offerings at the temple instead of the wealthier offerings. All the disciples, except for Judas, die a martyr's death. John died by probably being put on an island and left. But they all died a martyr's, martyr's death. The Apostle Paul, writer of over half the New Testament, over again cited danger and hardship and hunger and thirst, anxiety and weakness. All these things were part of him following Jesus. So we need to reevaluate our Christian worldview when it comes to what we expect from following Jesus. And here's, here's the, the truth of the matter. If our faith is strong and it's truly in God, then isn't Jesus more than we could ever, 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 ever have hoped for or imagined? That he accepted us into his family. That he gave us eternal life. That we're no longer objects of God's wrath. God is no longer against us. God is for us because of Jesus. He took us, he adopted us into his family, took us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, 
He gave us a new mission, a new purpose, and more importantly, he gave us himself. He put within us the Holy Spirit. And yet we're worried about like health and wealth and prosperity as our top like priorities. When Jesus said, I gave you God. My death on the cross gave you God. It gave you a relationship with him. Do we like comfort? Absolutely. Are most of, most of us by the world standard wealthy? Absolutely. But God wants us to take all these things and not be our idols that we worship and we run out and this is what we're about. He wants us to take all those things up and bring those to him and say, God, these are yours in the first place. And so you give me health, I'm going to be more energetic about your name. You give me wealth, I'm going to make a difference in your kingdom. You give me prosperity, I'm going to praise your name while I work with those who may not experience the same prosperity that I have. And so all of a sudden, these are just simply tools to better serve the kingdom. They're not the goal of being in the kingdom. And so the disciples, they didn't get it. They're having this conversation. And then Jesus, as a loving shepherd, he calls them to himself. Like rabbis of the day, he sat down among them. And he knew something, they knew something important was about to happen. Because when a teacher sat down to teach, some really good stuff was going to come out of their mouths. And so he begins to teach them. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He must be last of all and servant of all. Think how radical that was. To you guys who were just arguing about who's the greatest. And he says, you want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be great? Serve. Be last. You know, the world doesn't esteem that at all, does it? They would be sitting there thinking, scratching their head, thinking, okay, how is that anywhere like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers that I've grew up with, seeing them, they're, they're definitely first. I guess Jesus really is saying something different here. There's something different going on here with Jesus. And he's shown us a new way of living. And, he, and he's saying, don't get caught up in the world's ranking system. Don't get caught up in the way the world measures success. Those who are first in the opinions of others, or maybe in their own opinion, may be surprised to learn on Judgment Day that they're the last ones in God's opinion. So let's bring it home again. Let's make it personal. i got a little pride test for us here to maybe expose how maybe sometimes we're guilty of this as well. Am I upset if I'm not praised for my work? Am I upset if I'm not praised for my work? Do I like or even long to sit at the head of the table in the seat of honor? Do I want everybody to know I'm, I'm the big shot, I'm the, I'm the important guy? Do I seek credit for what other people have done? Do titles pump me up? Man, if I, just, I was that, then everybody look at me like I'm great. Is popularity critical to my sense of self-worth? Do I need other people to be around me and tell me how great I am and love me? Am I a name dropper of those I know or pretend like I know? Do I think I have something valuable to say about almost everything? Those things will begin to expose the pride in our own heart, where we're living for our own little kingdom of one versus God's kingdom. But I think this illustration 
that Jesus gave following this is probably what really got their attention. Just like visual illustrations oftentimes get our attention. So Jesus brings up a, a child into their midst. Look at verse 36, 37. And he took this little child and put him in the midst of them. And he takes him up in his arms. And he said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What was Jesus doing here? What was he doing here? I want you to think about this for a second, all right? Kids, raise your hand if you're under 10 years old right now. Raise your hand. All right. Sarah's saying yes. Is that like maybe? Like I'm maybe under 10? You're right at 10. Okay, you're not under 10. Okay, you're close. All right, we got several in here, all right? So, so Jake, how, what kind of career are you in right now? You don't know? Sarah, how much money do you make a year? Not a lot. Not, your annual income's not great. Um, uh, Trent, how, what kind of car do you drive, you personally? Bradley Kate, how many Instagram followers you got? You don't know? Joshua, are you in a boy band? No? They're like, look at me like, what is this about, right? Can you dunk a basketball? Do you have a TV show on Disney? I mean, all these things that show that, I mean, they got nothing to offer. A child has nothing to offer. And especially in first century culture, a child would have even had less value than what we think today. And you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, serving this child, loving this child does nothing to you. You get no kickback from this. There's nothing in it for you. He has nothing to offer you. He can't approve your status or your standing in this world. There's nothing in it from you for you for, from, a, from a selfish perspective. And that's what he's teaching here. And he's using a child, even though it goes beyond just a, a, an actual, a literal child. It's anyone that we serve. When we serve those who can't give in return, we're serving Jesus. So three things, really quick. When a believer comes to you, Jesus comes to you. Look what he says. Anyone who receives one such child in my name receives me. So he says, when a believer comes to you, Jesus comes to you. Why? Because Jesus resides in his children. How you treat another believer is how you treat Jesus. There's no getting around that. All right. Maybe you're thinking, well, I can see that with some believers, but not all believers. Really, you mean that one guy who corners me and like he's so annoying I can't get away? You know, is that, that Jesus isn't that guy, really? Or that person who like asks me for money all the time, or this person who is so so annoying and 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 weird. Jesus is in them. Well, if they're a believer, Jesus resides in them. And the way you treat that person is the way you're treating Jesus. Not my words, but Jesus' words. He says, I come to you in each other. I come to you in each other. So we receive and serve others as if we're serving Jesus, giving no thoughts to their accomplishments, their influence, their fame, or their bank account. When we serve somebody, that's not running through our grid. What can they do to us? I actually knew a guy on staff up in the D.C. area at one time, and he said their, their church intentionally pulled, um, I don't know how they did this, they pulled the salaries of certain neighborhoods and what people made, and, and they targeted that area for their church. That was their target market for their church. I don't get that, right? I, that, that seems a little anti-biblical that that could be happening. Or, you know, I, I knew a campus ministry in Texas 
who they would specifically target the most popular athletic kids in the school because they thought if we can get them into the mix, then we'll draw everybody else into the mix. But the tr problem was there was no really long-term fruit in that strategy. It, it worked to get a crowd, but it really didn't work in the, long, in the long run. Why? Because it's not the way Jesus operates. He says, you treat everyone as if you're treating me. You, you deal with everyone the way as if they were me. And we have the Holy Spirit within us, so when we encounter someone, we're encountering Jesus. The second thing, if you aspire to be great in God's eyes, give yourself to the small, mundane, easy, overlooked needs of those around you. If you aspire to be great in God's eyes, give yourself to the small, mundane, easily overlooked needs of those around you. There's so many opportunities to do that. Not to be like the Pharisees who are playing the trumpet with the fanfare. Look at me, what I'm doing here. Check my ministry out. I want everybody to know what I'm doing. But doing things that nobody knows or sees. Like the guys who show up in the mornings at 6.30 on Sunday to set this room up so we can sit comfortably in here. The deacons who are running around like crazy, serving, doing things during the service. The children's workers who are literally ministering to those who can give nothing to them in return. I mean, I think in my entire life as a youth ministry, I got three thank you notes in many, many years. All right, kids don't say thank you. Hey, thanks for, thanks for teaching me today. That was awesome. That was great. Thank you. I'll see you. See you next month. Kids don't do that. All right, they don't. You don't get anything in return other than what Jesus gives you, which says, I'm serving Jesus in this moment. And so that leads me to the third thing. There are a few earthly benefits for being a servant. Because in the flesh, look, Let's be honest, being a servant stinks, all right? I mean, honestly, who wants to, like, do things all the time for others and serve other people? Because in the flesh, this is counter-natural. This is not the way that we naturally want life to work. We want to be served. No, we not. Do we not? We want other people to serve us. And Jesus says, nope, when I'm in you, I will plant within you a desire to serve others and you'll get no reward, most likely, in this life. Your reward will come in eternity. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. So Jesus' disciples, these guys who were arguing, jockeying for position, they weren't going to gain any special favors or enhanced social status because they were following Jesus. They just weren't. They weren't going to gain anything from a world standpoint. It was all going to be loss after loss after loss for them. And so Jesus pulled him in and said, look, i got to teach you some critical things because if you're going to be my ambassadors, this is what you got to know. And here we are years and years later, and we're still struggling with the same thing they struggled with. What's in this for me? And people just toss their ministry aside because it's too hard. You know, it's, it's too inconvenient. Or, you know, the kids, man, they're, they're, they're pretty rough. And we just throw in the towel so easily. And if we would change our perspective and say, wow, I get a chance to serve Jesus by serving in this capacity, in this way. I'm serving Jesus here. Wouldn't that change our ministry? Instead of serving coffee, like, oh, here you go. You would say, well, I get to serve Jesus a cup of coffee. I get to sweep a floor for Jesus. I get to pick up a piece of trash for Jesus. I mean, that's something that's counter-natural, isn't it? And definitely counter-cultural. 
our culture doesn't esteem that and build that up. I mean, that's looked at for, for the minimum wage workers. That's not for us. We're important, right? And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you got to live a different way. So if this is the way that Jesus has called us to live, the question I have is, how in the world do we do this? If it is counter-natural, if it's counter-cultural, how do we do it? Let me tell you the first thing we don't do. It's not about just, I'm going to try harder. Like, I'm going to try really hard to be a servant. I'm going to, I'm going to stick it out in the children's ministry even though I hate it, right? I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to grin and bear it. That's not the way that we do it because you'll run out of fuel very, very quickly. It's like the guy who goes to the doctor and he says, Doc, i got a pain in my chest. And the doctor says, okay, well, maybe you, have a, maybe you have a pectoral injury there. Let me give you a muscle relaxer. Well, Doc, I'm also experiencing shortness of breath. Oh, well, you probably have asthma. I'll, I'll get you an inhaler as well. i got some, got some pain and discomfort in my arm as well. Well, you know, maybe, let me give you the name of my masseuse. Like, they'll massage, they'll, they'll work that out. And then I'm, I'm, I'm sweating a lot, and I'm always hot. What are you running your air conditioner on? Maybe you should turn that down a few notches. We'll see you later. And they go their way and treat the symptoms, and obviously you're missing literally the heart of the problem, right? And that's what we're oftentimes guilty of. And we're good at talking about knowing what to do, which is our relationship with Jesus spending time with him, him being our fuel, that everyday mercies we talked about a few weeks ago that he gives form-fitted for every situation you're going to encounter that day, every tragedy, struggle, difficulty. He says, I've got all those mercies that I'm going to give you every morning for what you're going to be dealing with, yet we, I, got, I don't have time for the fuel. I know enough. I, I, can, I can probably figure this out on my way. And we're going to burn out. We, we, there's no joy in that. Because it's all us. And God's grace. He wants to unload his grace. And that's the only source of power we have. Is Jesus and his grace. The cross that says you can never ever measure up. That's why I came. I came to give you what you could not earn or gain on your own. I came to give you life. And to give it to you for the fullest. And that's not about more of you. That's about less of you. Being last, being servant, I'll increase, you decrease. Let's pray. Father God, your word is so amazing and so powerful. And God, we sit here and we just are in amazement of just words that we probably read over and over again, but we've never truly taken them to heart because so many areas of our life, we're not serving. We're expecting to be served. And God, I thank you for those who do have a heart of service in here. God, I thank you for those who really, truly, uh, at the end of the day, they, they say, I'm, I'm doing this for you, God, not for recognition, not for fame, not for status. And God, I pray that they won't get discouraged in well-doing, but God, they'll, they'll continue just to be faithful, serving and ministering and caring. And God, knowing that their reward is definitely in the next life and the joy that they find in this life, knowing that you're pleased and you're happy. And God, I pray that for one here who, who really, truly their relationship with you has been an obligation kind of thing. They're, they do what they're supposed to, and you're supposed to do what you're supposed to, God. I pray that you'll break them out of that mindset. Help them to give generously and serve generously because the way you came and you gave yourself generously. 
and you served generously. And you washed our feet. You laid down your life for us. And help us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, be right behind you, following you. And when we do that for you, we do it for God and the glory of him. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs>